You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. We now return you to a continuing discussion from NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine and moderated by Dr. Arnold Epstein of the Journal and Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard School of Public Health. Past, present, and future. Um, That's the sequence. That's how it unfolds. Let's look back um, when President Obama was candidate Obama just a year ago when we did our last forum here. He was very clear about his domestic priorities. The economy was number one, and after that was health care and energy. And he has not wavered one bit. And if you look at how health policy has unfurled from the White House, I wouldn't be the first one to comment that it looks like a redux of reverse Clintonism. For if you go back to 1993, President Clinton wrote the first textbook. He came out in January and at the end of the month created a task force of federal bureaucrats, advisors, and counselors to ultimately produce a 1,300-page document called the Health Security Act. Enormous in its scope and complexity, and what was remarkable about it is it came totally out of the executive branch, not a whit out of Congress. It took until September before it was even introduced to the, the populace, leave alone gone through the committees. And the president, to demonstrate his commitment to it, said with a typical Clintonian gesture, it will be universal coverage and not one bit less. And he appointed his wife to head the task force, putting the bill forth as an additional sign of his resolve, not to mention her own formidable ability. And despite that ability and his resolve, it did not work. And we did not get health reform last time. No legislation. So this time we see President Obama really following a totally different script. No executive task force, just the opposite. This is Congress's job to propose the laws and make them. And it was the executive's job, at least until two weeks ago, to merely espouse eight very broad principles and to partake in a very modest public relations campaign, getting information, regional forums, things like that. And Mr. Obama made it clear that he wanted something simple, not with labyrinthine complexity. Let's stick to what we're familiar with. He made it clear that he was ready to compromise. I have eight principles, but I'm ready to give in. And oh yes, please get on it. Time is of the essence. And so now we've come full circle towards the end game. President Obama took eight principles and started to, started to hone in on some of the things that he thinks are most important. And in Congress, we've seen the Congress do its job, still doing its job. Five committees of jurisdiction, three of them in the House, Ways and Means, Labor, and Energy and Commerce, have produced H.R. 3200, slightly different variants out of each committee, but basically the same bill. The Health Committee, Health Education, Labor, and Pensions in the Senate has produced a bill on the delivery system, but they can't touch finance. And the Finance Committee is marking up as we speak there are some important points of agreement. First has got to be the change in the insurance markets. All the bills call for something, be it national or state-based, some sort of exchange or gateway that will make it easier for those in the small group or individual market to get insurance efficiently. They also call for regulations of the health insurance industry, real changes such as guaranteed issue, guaranteed renewability, exclusion of pre-existing conditions, and limited risk rating. They call for expansion of the Medicaid program 
not only expansion for women and children, which is, we've been in there before, but for men and other categorical groups that we'll go through. There are four more provisions. There are individual mandates and employer mandates. That is to say, individuals will be required to purchase insurance or pay penalties, and employers of a certain size, it'll vary by bill, 25 or 50 members or a certain size payroll, will be required to purchase insurance or contribute towards it in another way. And then there'll be subsidies for individuals to help purchase insurance up to 400% of the poverty line. And for small employers who are willing to go out and buy insurance, there'll be tax credits. Those are the points of agreement. And yes, in the second decimal place, they all vary. And some of those variabilities are important about exactly how big the subsidies are and exactly how big the penalties are. But those are all, those are all places where I think the the members agree and where I think we can get to yes. But there are some places where yes may elude us. Do we have a public plan? Is it state-based? Is it national? And especially in the details, how regulatory is it? What are the rules about competing and not competition? And how big are the subsidies that we're going to need? Tremendous difference in them. And where is the money going to come from to pay for those subsidies? How much of that money will come from Medicare cuts how much of it will come from taxes on the elderly? How much of it will come from fees or taxes on health insurance firms that provide expensive policies? And what about the expansion of Medicaid? Are states ready for it? And is that expansion funded, or is it an unfunded mandate? And finally, as we try and move forward politically, it takes 60 votes, as everybody knows, for cloture. If they're not there, will we go towards reconciliation? All those are important questions. And they're exactly the sorts of questions that I'm hoping our panel focuses on as we move forward. Their charge has been to think about what's happened to date, to feel free to talk about what they like or what they don't like, what they think the opportunities are and the challenges are, and especially how they see this thing, whatever this thing is, playing out. Leading off will be Mark Pauley, who's the Bentheim professor at the Wharton School in the University of Pennsylvania. He's formerly executive director of the Leonard Davis Institute at the U of University of Pennsylvania. He's certainly one of the country's most distinguished health economists. Mark, thank you for joining us. I understand there to be four goals of health reform as currently being discussed. That is to cover the uninsured, lower cost growth, improve quality, and only tax rich people. Um, my uh, my um, judgment on that is that's impossible. Uh, that uh, you cannot do all those four things or you have to do something else. Something's got to go. I hate to say that, uh, but I am following the advice of my econometrics professor in teaching forecasting who said, when you forecast, always forecast what you don't want to have happen. Then either you'll be right or you'll be pleasantly surprised. So, uh, but I actually do um, believe in my heart of hearts that the uh, four goals I've outlined are not going to be able to be achieved. And so what I've asked myself is, um, supposing that I'm right and that that's true, there will be buyer's remorse uh, once, if we do get something passed, and I believe we will get something passed, something that we'll call health reform. Uh, and if that's so, then what are the flashpoints for this buyer's remorse? They are also, of course, feeding back a bit into what should be put into the plan in the first place, perhaps to avoid buyer's remorse. Okay, so uh, the, the first thing I wanted to comment on uh, as a flashpoint is the employer mandate. 
Um, I might as well uh, be uh, outspoken here and say I, I think we need to lose the employer mandate. I think it's uh, it's uh, a really bad idea for for two reasons. Probably there's more, but I'll just tell you about two. One is um, it's terribly inequitable. If you think of the low-wage worker who's working at a small low-wage firm uh, that would pay and then the person would go to the exchange and get a generous subsidy, you have the worker with the identical skills working for a high-wage large firm. Uh, Kate's already given you the Economist Party line on this. We believe workers pay for their benefits. That low-wage worker working for the high-wage firm will not be receiving anything like the subsidy available to the other low-wage worker, and I just think that's um, uh, um, both unjust and um, destabilizing. More importantly, though, um, despite what economists think, employers think they do pay the money uh, for health benefits. They do think it comes out of profits. Uh, and um, they've been very quiet lately. Um, I'm from a business school, so I can tell you why. Their attentions are otherwise occupied uh, in trying to deal with the uh, macroeconomic disturbance. But um, once they notice that they are probably first in line when this thing doesn't really work out to have to pay the tab, which I think is likely, then they will take notice and do something. And I think they may notice that even before passage, but certainly afterwards. And so rather than um, create uh, unnecessary uh, and inequitable opposition to what is fundamentally an important social goal, let's cover everybody in this country, uh, or almost everybody, um, uh, my view would be let's think of some other way of doing things other than an employer mandate. I have another way, uh, which is what I call an employer-enforced individual mandate, which essentially says, I'll get to it in a minute, start with a just and wise individual mandate, but for those people who are workers, kind of give the employer first dibs on arranging the insurance that satisfies that mandate, and also give the employer the task of making sure, uh, because the employer, after all, is processing the individual's payroll checks, uh, that some money is going toward health insurance. The second uh, point that I wanted to make that I think is a flashpoint is the individual mandate. Um, I have uh, long been in favor of an individual mandate since 1989, and I guess my simplistic view of this is don't mandate if you must exempt. In a way, this is sort of the ultimate touchstone. It only is comfortable to mandate coverage if the subsidies that are being provided are regarded as adequate and enough to make it care affordable. Now, I'm here to tell you I don't know what affordable means. But I can absolutely guarantee no one else does either. It's a social value judgment. But whatever it means, the way to make sure we get there is to say uh, that um, we won't offer a mandate unless we provide subsidies sufficiently generous to all the people we are mandating to feel comfortable doing that. But uh, at this point, I think the important thing about an individual mandate is to get it right the first time, because if we get it wrong, it's just going to be another flashpoint for all sorts of consternation at a minimum and perhaps for even further corruption. The third thing Kate had already mentioned a bit, the tax on a high cost plans. I think this is too clever by half. I'm not in favor of clever. I went to the University of Virginia. We revere Mr. Jefferson, and we believe you ought to level with the American people, not try to pull a fast one on them. And it really does make me upset if I know what we're trying to do here. Unions don't want to go out on a date with um, caps on employer provide uh, caps on excluded benefits. So we've dressed that uh, that date up in the con 
context of a tax on insurers, but nobody thinks the insurers will actually end up paying for it. I'd rather be straightforward on the grounds that um, everybody sees through this duplicity anyway, so if it actually should come to pass, it probably wouldn't be very stable. I don't think American people and voters are stupid. Uh, and, uh, and we ought to do the right thing. And um, of course, the virtue of, of capping the exclusion is you do get uh, more equity uh, out of that in the sense that the um, exclusion, the value of the exclusion to low-wage people, if there might be some of them with very high-cost health plans, at least the penalty they would have to pay is quite small, whereas uh, when you cap my high-cost health plan, I would be paying a lot more, and that seems to me to be the right thing to do. I, there are a lot of issues, of course, designing either a cap or a tax, uh, some of them having to do with um, other reasons for variation in insurance costs. Um, I believe where there's a will, there's a way. We can risk adjust these things. We can geography adjust these things if we want. But I guess, um, at least my view is, the, the universal health economist favored of something to do, both to raise money to improve equity and, and to uh, bend the healthcare spending growth curve is to do something about untaxed, tax-exempt employee benefits. So if we don't do anything else, we ought to at least do that one. Uh, fourth point, community rating. Um, there is an issue here. What we um, want to avoid is what's called in, t in term of art is reclassification risk. You are at the moment a healthy, uh, robust, magnificent physical specimen. Uh, uh, and but you still could get sick, so you'll want to have health insurance. So that's one thing you want to protect yourself against, and people who have insurance are protected against that. But for a lot of people, there's another thing that could happen, which is not only do you get sick this year, and you'll have to pay that those health care costs, but you become a high risk for the rest of your life, or at least for a long period of time. And if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, that could result in you having to pay higher health insurance premiums for the rest of your life. So that's what we want to avoid, but using Using community rating to do it is the dumbest possible way to do a good thing uh, that I can think of. Uh, and the primary reason is community rating, in effect, is not risk pooling. It's risk transfer. And it achieves its purposes by imposing an excise tax on the health insurance of low-risk people to pay for the subsidy, an appropriate subsidy, for the health insurance of high-risk people. We know excise taxes are a bad idea. And in fact, as some of my research has shown, if you do tax the low-risk people, they'll drop coverage if they can. Uh, so you actually make the problem of the uninsured worse, but there are much better ways. The obvious one is a high-risk pool, of course, ideally funded by equitable and efficient general revenue taxes. An even better idea is what's called guaranteed renewability at class averages, which basically says when you buy insurance while you're healthy, pay two premiums. One premium goes to cover your costs this year. The other goes to an insurance, which in effect will pay the difference between the low-risk premium and the high-risk premium uh, until you go on Medicare. And my final point has to to do with Medicare, um, which somehow seems more important to me than it used to. Uh, but um, I am a bit, I am somewhat ashamed of my demographic, but I'm going to say what we're supposed to say, keep your hands off my Medicare. Uh, and the, the main point is, as the president said, uh, he anticipates funding most of the cost of uh, coverage for the uninsured out of Medicare. We just don't want that to happen, but we can't be spending that money twice. We can't use it to cover today's uninsured and at the same time have it available to improve the very dire fiscal fortunes of Medicare. 
So those are my five comments. I think these are all places where um, we uh, need to pay some attention, uh, where especially we need to pay attention uh, to a scenario in which uh, we're, we're going to have to revisit them. I very much agree with Hank on that. Massachusetts is a state that went to universal coverage, but there were more than a dozen states that started on the way to universal coverage and never got there, even if they passed legislation. So uh, there are a lot of uh, slips between cup and lip here, and uh, uh, we want to make sure that the number of slips here is minimized. And I guess for, uh, for a public plan, I guess my view on that is, let's say we have a public plan. Thank you. Um, I want to just pick up as we close um, where Henry started out, which is the notion that this is um, not all going to be over as we pass or don't pass legislation. And I think that's true. I had the Department of Health Policy Management, and I will still be in business six months from now. Um, having said that, we haven't been here in at least 16 years, and we have the chance of doing something, whatever that is, that may substantially change our healthcare system. So I really want to thank our sponsors for fostering this opportunity to learn more about it, for our panelists to help edify us about the opportunities and challenges, and I hope you'll all join me, not only at the reception, but in wishing that we'll be pleasantly surprised with what happens. Have a good day. You have been listening to NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air at XM160.